your son rising over the grave, over death. And we are so thankful that we have not forgotten about what you have done. You have not let us forget. And we are thankful for that. We are thankful that it brings new life to those that just put their faith in your son and would just look upon your son and say yes to him and what he's done for us. We're so thankful that we have a chance to gather like this to be able to express our gratitude to you. We're thankful we have a chance now to open your word together. We know that your word changes us and we pray that you would do that even today, that each one of us would walk away different considering all that you want for us and really considering who you are. So we pray that you'd help us now as we look into your word. In Christ's name, amen. And you can be seated. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. We are so, so thankful every week that we get to worship with you, and hopefully uh, you've come in this morning, and you are expecting to hear from God's Word, and you're excited to see what He's going to do with that in your life. Do you believe that God could change your life today through the power of His Word? All right, if you don't believe that, you should start believing that, because He promises that His Word is powerful and able to stir us in our affections towards Him. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and open them up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24? And we're going to be jumping back into our series. We have just a few more weeks as we conclude our study through the book of Luke. But as you are doing that, I wanted to just to make a couple of announcements. The first is something we heard in the Salem Heights Today video. The next Sunday, we're going to have a special guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, <coughs> Pastor Demetrius from the Moody Church in Chicago. Uh, many of you have probably have heard Pastor Lutzer preach either on the radio or online, have read many of his books. Uh, he's a distinguished author and preacher and a very enduring preacher. If you were to listen to him, if you haven't, I would encourage you this week to check him out online. He's a man that as you listen to him preach, he just draws you in. He's a gifted communicator of God's word. And we are excited to have him next week. And he's actually going to be preaching two different sermons. Uh, one sermon in the morning called How to Survive the Storm from Matthew chapter 14. And then uh, that'll be for first and second services in the morning. And then in the evening, he's going to have a brand new sermon called when the state becomes God, based on Daniel chapter 3. We'd encourage you to come back if you uh, maybe want to attend both. This is kind of a throwback to the days when maybe you attended morning and evening church. Uh, but it's going to be a great weekend. I, would I believe you're going to be encouraged, and so we wanted to invite you all to that. The second thing we wanted to update you on is something that's been incredible. Several weeks ago, we presented a need to you, a, a vision to improve our children's ministry area, and we put out a, a goal. We said we had $30,000 in the bank, and we needed to raise $60,000 to complete that. And I'm happy to report to you this morning that you have given above what we needed to complete this project. Uh, we don't talk about money often here, and we put that out before you, and, and God moved in you, and we are so excited that you are excited about this vision and see the need and the importance of the children of our ministry. So we just wanted to share that with you, that God is good, and that He has, through your generosity, met that need, and we're excited to get that project started the day after VBS, July 15th, this summer. Can we pray and just thank the Lord for His faithfulness? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love, the way that you pour out this love in abundance. You're not a God that is, that is stingy or that holds back. You're a God who gives generously and in abundance. And, and God, I'm so thankful for you meeting this need through your church. I, I'm thankful for the people who contributed and who've been praying for this. And 
We continue to seek your wisdom and guidance as we move forward and, and we make this investment into just one area of our church that we can better impact families and children and be able to bring them in into a safe and secure environment and teach them your word, teach them the gospel message, God. And so thank you for providing this and allow us to be thankful in our hearts for your generosity. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I hate to wait. I hate to wait. I don't know about you. I hate to wait. Something God's been growing in my life over the years, but a few weeks ago, my wife and I needed to make a trip up to the Apple store up in uh, Tualatin, Bridgeport, and uh, one of our phones was not working, and so we went into the Apple store to have them diagnosed. And if you've ever been to an Apple store, um, it's, it's super modern and cool. Everyone's wearing these cool t-shirts, and everyone's holding an Apple device. And it seems like, I mean, there's just so many employees that they're going to get to you quickly. And so someone immediately walked up to us and, and asked us what we were there for. We told them what we needed help with, and they said, all right, we're going to put you into the system, and we need you to go sit in this table over there at one of those tables, and, and someone will be with you shortly. <laughs> so we went over to this table. We thought, is this the table? They just, they just pointed to an area. Go over to this area. We sat at this table, and there were a couple people in their Apple shirts with their Apple and their, their hipster glasses and their little facial hair, and they were ready to help. And, and uh, I'm not knocking Apple. I love Apple. I'm an Apple guy, but um, we waited. And there were lots of people walking around us that weren't helping anybody. There was tons of people who looked like they could help us. And, and both my wife and I, our, our, our flesh started to take over a little bit. Like, why are we in the right place? Uh, do they know we're even here? Can we trust this guy who told us that we, he knew that we were here? He, he got us checked into the system and just told us to go wait in the corner? Like, is that really, it didn't seem to be the right plan. And as we were sitting there, it became uh, really increasingly obvious that maybe we had been forgotten about, maybe something had gone wrong. And so both of us were kind of like, we should just leave. This is pointless. We, we've driven all the way up here. They're not ready to help us. Our flesh started to grow. Our discouragement started to grow. We became impatient and irritated. We were caught in that, that dreaded in-between where someone said, do this, and now we have to wait until action has taken place. We had a choice in that moment to either trust what we've been told or to act according to our feelings. Have you ever been there? Our text this morning finds two of Jesus's disciples in a similar dilemma. They were not two of the original 12, but they had been following Jesus for a while. They had heard and seen everything that had taken place over the last week and they had a hope that Jesus was going to be the one who would soon redeem Israel. But now he was gone. Our notes say this. It didn't make sense. So much had happened. So much had changed. As evening approached on that resurrection Sunday, the disciples remained stunned by the tragic events of the crucifixion. Their next steps would be both crucial and unclear. What do they do now? Would they go back to the life they had before Christ? Could they even go back? Their hopes have been shattered. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Have you ever been there? It was questions like these that the two disciples discussed as they made their way to Emmaus that late afternoon. And even though Jesus had warned his disciples about his coming death and resurrection, they failed to recognize that the empty tomb was a sign of his eternal victory over sin and death. Our text this morning 
will show us how Christ came along these discouraged disciples and reignited their faith through the explanation of the scriptures. And if we play, pay close attention this morning, we too can learn how to avoid discouragement and remain faithful as we wait for his return. Does that sound like a good plan? Our passage is a little longer this morning, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13 and going all the way to verse 35. And so we're going to approach it a little differently than we normally do. Instead of reading it all in one uh, big chunk here at the beginning, having you stand, uh, we're just going to work through it and we're going to make some observations as we work through the text. So join me here in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. You can remain seated. It says this, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. The first thing we see here is that these men are are in a delusion of defeat. A delusion of defeat. It says that they had left Jerusalem that very day. So to give us some context, Pastor Justin preached on these first 13 verses or first 12 verses last week. Jesus had been crucified on Friday. It was now Sunday. The women had returned to his tomb to prepare his body, and he was not there. They had a vision of angels who said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They were amazed. They had gone back and reported this, and we saw that the men didn't necessarily believe this testimony of the women, but few of them went and ran to the tomb themselves, Peter being one of them, and they too found the tomb just as was described. And so now we pick up the story in verse 13. It's the same day, that that Sunday afternoon, the first day of the week. And they're heading to Emmaus. Uh, Emmaus, it says here, is about seven miles from Jerusalem. It would have taken, uh, some, some experts would say it would have taken just due to the terrain about two or two and a half hours to walk this. And so we believe it was later in the day on Sunday because here in verses 22 and 23, we're going to see that they referred to the, that they had heard the report and the testimony of the women in the morning, that they had gone to the tomb. And, and we're going to see at the end of this text that they arrive at Emmaus towards evening. So we're going to say that it was later in the afternoon as they began to head to Emmaus. And it says that they're talking and discussing the things that had taken place. The first part of verse 15, look what it says. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and they began, and began traveling with them. That word there in verse 15 that says they were discussing, actually in some of your translations might use a word like debate or arguing. Uh, these disciples were emotional. They were perplexed. They were confused at what had just happened. At the very least, they were discouraged. Jesus was dead, and with him, they felt their hope had died. Verse 16, it says, Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he, being Jesus, said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, Answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus here playing along. And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, beside all of this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said to us that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. They had an encounter with a stranger, it says here. Jesus resurrected, notices them walking, knows what they're talking about, and just starts to walk alongside them. I wonder how long it took for them to recognize that some stranger was walking along. But most likely, people were leaving Jerusalem. Passover had happened. The Sabbath had happened. They're now making their way back to their their homes and villages. And so perhaps it wasn't uncommon for a stranger just to kind of be hearing you talk and joining in as you were walking along the way. And they ask a question. Jesus asked the question about what are you talking about? And Cleopas, the only one that's named here, looks at him and is astonished, right? How is it that you don't know what we're talking about? How is that possible? (laughs) The irony here is that Jesus was the only one that really knew everything that had taken place. But look at some of the key statements that are made by Cleopas as he begins to answer Jesus' question. In verse 19, he says, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in sight of God and all the people. Notice that he uses the word was. He's reluctant to identify Jesus as the Messiah because he's assuming that Jesus is dead and therefore not the one that they had hoped was going to redeem Israel. He properly identifies the chief priests and the rulers, the Israel people, the the Israelites, the rulers of the Jewish people as the ones who had caused Jesus to be crucified, not placing blame on the Roman government. In verse 21, it says, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things had happened. You know, earlier in Luke's account, Luke records that Jesus had predicted, had told his followers that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be buried, and that he was going to rise again. This should have left his followers, his true disciples, anticipating on that third day that today's the day we're going to see our Savior again. But when they say here, it's the third day, they're not speaking with anticipation. They are speaking to the cultural context that three days a person's dead, they're dead dead. They're not mostly dead. There's no coming back from that. In fact, a lot of the cultural customs said you had to be buried before three days because after that, the body would become too far gone to actually do anything with it. You would have to just leave it, and that would be unclean. Did you notice what he also says here in verse 21? But we were hoping. This was the source of their discouragement. They wanted Jesus to be the one that was going to redeem Israel. They had known the prophecies that talked about a Messiah, a Savior that was going to come and that was going to establish his kingdom again, that was going to reestablish Israel, God's chosen people. They believed that Jesus was that one that was going to go into Jerusalem and was going to be able to clear out all of the, the outsiders and be able to restore Israel, but that didn't happen. They wanted him to redeem Israel, but they had not anticipated that he would hand over his life to be a sacrifice. 
They also mention here that they were amazed by the testimony, but did you notice how that didn't necessarily change their attitudes? We were amazed to find out that Jesus' body is not there anymore. But they did not believe that he was alive. It says there at the end of verse 24, but him they did not see. Yeah, we were told by the women that they had gone there. He wasn't there. They, they saw a vision of angels who said that he's alive. Even some of the men that were with us, some of the, the other followers of Jesus went to the tomb. They found it just as the women said, but they didn't see him. And instead of that clicking in their mind, and Jesus said that he was going to die, but in three days he was going to rise from the dead, they said, he's gone. He's dead. And so they head home to Emmaus, in the delusion of defeat, thinking that everything had been lost. They have this encounter with a stranger, and then we see one of the most epic Bible studies in human history, because the Word explains the Word. Think about that. A few minutes ago, Cleopas says to Jesus, are you the only one who has never heard of this? Almost saying, how foolish, like, who are you? And he's a stranger. He doesn't recognize Jesus. And then just a few minutes later, Jesus says to him, no, you're the foolish one. It says here that in verse 25, and he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You might want to circle or underline that word all because that's going to be a key thing for you and I to learn this morning. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. What an amazing thing. It says here that they were slow to believe all that the prophets had foretold. These men being followers of Jesus would have, have been raised going to, to the temple, raised going to their local assemblies and hearing the Old Testament scriptures taught. They would have been taught the Old Testament scriptures. They would have known the messianic prophecies, the, the times in the past where God through prophets, through leaders, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave his word to mankind and said, here's my plan. Here's my plan to redeem mankind. <clears throat> but they did not remember all that they were taught. Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke says this, Jesus goes on to point out that the root of their trouble was the failure to accept what is taught in biblical prophecy. He explained things concerning himself. Imagine this Bible study. Jesus takes them, <clears throat> and as they're walking along, starts with Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. And Jesus takes them back there to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, where God says that now because of the sin that existed, there's going to come one. And, and yeah, Satan, the enemy, is going to be able to to, to bruise the heel, is going to be able to inflict some pain, but the one that's going to come is going to crush the enemy. And then starts to work through the Old Testament, passage by passage, moving into the Psalms, moving into the prophets, all of these things that talked about not only a righteous ruling Messiah who would restore Israel one day, who would reestablish his, his throne and his kingdom, and it would last forever, but that there would also be one who would come and who would lay down his life. He would be a suffering servant. 
The Word explains the Word. And we have a great example here of what we call exposition. That's something we want to be about as a church, that every week that we're not going to just stand up here before you and just tell you what we think you need to hear for this week. We're going to let God's Word speak to you. And we're going to walk through it, and we're going to, our job as preachers is to explain to you what God is saying. And that, our example for that is Jesus. That's what he does. He starts with the Word of God, and he takes them to that to explain the events of their day. Do you know that we still should be doing that? You want to make sense of your day today? You want to make sense of all the things you're facing today, all the hardship, all the struggle? Do you know that, that the solution that the, the, the solution to figuring out what's going on and what your next step should be hasn't changed. That God has given his Holy Spirit inside of you if you've believed in him for salvation and it's given now a helper that's gonna help you understand this and allow this to continue to give you insight for today. All of it, it says in 2 Timothy, is profitable for us to help us with our day. And so their hope then is restored. Look what it says here, verse 29, verse 28, excuse me. <clears throat> and they approached the village where they were going. And he acted as if though he were going farther, but they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes then were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. It's interesting here that Jesus assumes the role of a host. Jesus is invited into one of these homes by one of the two men as they were traveling. So Jesus is a guest, and it would be the role of the host to serve the meal. But it says that Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and started to handing it to them. It's a very interesting thing that he would do. Perhaps because of the authority in which he was teaching them along the way that they just they obliged and allowed him to take that role. But it says that when he breaks the bread and hands it to him, it's at that moment that they're able to see this is Jesus. And it says that when they recognized him, at that moment he vanished. There's lots of speculations on what happened. We know that it wasn't them. It wasn't that they had been naive, uh, that they were prevented from seeing Jesus up until that point. And so what was it that triggered this recognition? Some say that Again, it was just the, the spiritual uh, blinders were lifted off and it was allowed to see. Some say that perhaps that was the first time as he broke the bread where they actually saw his nail-pierced hands and it clicked. Whatever it was, they were able to see it was Jesus. And he vanishes. And in verse 32, it says, Were not our hearts burning within us while he explained the scriptures to us? They begin to talk about what was Jesus doing. When he was teaching, this was, we were stirred deeply by what he was saying. We were hanging on every word. And it says they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this was unusual because now it was nighttime and it was very uncommon to travel that kind of distance in the night because there would be the threat of robbers or thieves along the way. But there wasn't a robber or thief that was going to stop them. There wasn't anything, any threat that was going to stop them from going and telling the other followers what they had just 
experienced? What kind of obstacles, inconveniences stop us from sharing the word of God when he stirs us? What kind of things would get in the way that would prevent you from saying, I've just been in God's word. His Holy Spirit is making it come alive. I am so excited by what I'm reading. I'm so convicted by what I'm reading. This message needs to go out, but it's late. But they might not accept this. But they might have told me they don't want to hear it. Let me just point to you here that if God stirs you in this way, if if he uses his word to reignite your faith, if there's a message that he has put on your heart that he wants you to share with somebody else, don't wait. Tell him. And so he goes and he reports that everything, everything that they had seen, they, they tell to the 11 and they hear that Peter also too had had an appearance from the Lord and they begin to relate their experiences and they are acknowledging now that Jesus has risen. Everything has changed You know, this passage is important because it's one of several key texts in the Bible that give us eyewitness testimony that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And this is a very important thing. You know, remember Luke's goal at the beginning that he states in the first four verses of Luke was to write an orderly account of everything that had been testified about. So Luke had gone out and had interviewed all these eyewitnesses and he's writing this account so that Theophilus, the man that he's writing this account for, can read it and know that everything that I'm saying happened in here, I have fact-checked, it's been verified, you can trust it. And so Luke, along with the other uh, gospel uh, authors, they include these the passages of, of eyewitness testimony where Jesus had appeared. Why? Because they wanted to say that this actually happened. This wasn't a hallucination. This wasn't just some misguided belief. This was actually eyewitnessed by hundreds of people. Jesus was seen alive. And why is that so important? My wife and I will watch. Uh, we're kind of in a, we, we have a home that we're, we're trying to do some repairs as we go. And I've shared some of those stories before because I'm not handy. So things are going slower than they probably should. And, uh, but uh, we'll watch shows and that talk about home improvement. And so I've learned a few things about home improvement. All right. Not from the Tim Allen home improvement. That actually was more fun to watch, but I'm still learning things uh, watching HGTV. But there's something in a house called a, a load-bearing beam. You can't just take that out to make the room open, to make open spaces, because the whole house, this is not my house, by the way. <clears throat> it's a lot worse than that, no. Uh, that load-bearing beam, all of the house, the roof, the walls, everything is built into these beams that are designed to hold the weight of everything. And sometimes we want to remove walls and open up, make it an open concept. You can't just take out posts or beams that are holding up the way to the house because what will happen? The house will collapse. Everything will fall apart if you take out that load-bearing post. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is worthless, and we of all persons are to be the most pitied in the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is crucial to our faith. And we have confidence that it happened because the eyewitness testimonies that are recorded for us in the scriptures. 
And so we should read that and we should see this and go, man, Jesus appears to them. They saw him. They knew it was him because of the authority he spoke with, the scriptures, the way they were stirred up on the inside. Their hearts were burning. But there's something else that I want us to see as we look at this passage. Because this text, I believe, also highlights a simple but important truth. And that is this. The word of God can keep us settled and steady in the in-between. Did you catch that? The word of God can keep us settled and steady in the in-between. The word settled is defined in the dictionary as firmly established over time. Firmly established over time was what it means to be settled. The word steady is defined as firm in one's allegiance to someone or something. Firm in our allegiance to something or someone. These two disciples were caught in the in-between. They had followed Jesus. They had seen Jesus go through this tragedy, this tragic crucifixion. They had not seen him yet to their knowledge. And so in those three days that went by, they had to work through all the emotions of waiting and not understanding and being confused. Jesus highlights why they were confused. It's because they had not accepted all that he had told them all that the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied. And so they are wavering. The in-between. What is the in-between? The in-between, I believe, is when we have a choice to take God at his word while we wait for his return. That's the in-between. See, they were in an in-between. Jesus was with them. He died He said he was coming back. They were confused. They were in the in-between. We are in the in-between. Jesus has come. He died on the cross for our sins. He's provided salvation to us freely. He has ascended back into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father preparing a place for us. And he has promised he will return for his church. And those who have passed away... There's no need to be worried about them because they too will be reunited with their Savior forever. But we're in the in-between. You know what happens in the in-between? Our feelings and our fears can overwhelm us as we wait. The things of life can kind of get us distracted, get us off track as we wait in the in-between. And so I want to point out three observations from this text this morning as we conclude not just how you can survive the in-between, but I think these are three things that we must make a priority in our lives as we as Christians follow Christ and wait for his soon return that will keep us not just surviving, but will help us thrive in the in-between. The first one is this. We need to let scripture inform our circumstances and direct our steps. Now I'm gonna tell you, these three points are not earth-shattering. They're so simple, we might even discount them, but they are critical. They are critical. When Holly and I were expecting Jamin, our first son, uh, we were given a, a series of books to read. Maybe you, were, maybe you received these books as well, books, what to expect when you're expecting or for moms to read. And it talks about all the things that are going to happen in their body, what's going to be happening inside them with their baby, what to expect as labor begins, what to expect after labor begins, 
all this expertise. They've even written books for dads to be able to understand what's going on with their wives and, and what's, what's going to be happening to them and how they need to be prepared and the emotions and everything that goes into that. And, and some of us guys go, I don't, I don't need to read that, right? But we get these books that kind of give us these expertise because why? So that when we are going through labor pains, when we are starting to experience discomfort, when we don't understand what's going on, instead of becoming overwhelmed and fearful and thinking something's wrong, that we will have an understanding of what's going on and we can stay settled and steady and know that, yes, there's going to be some discomfort. Yes, there's going to be some pain, but that's all part of the process. And the result is that beautiful moment when a mother and father get to hold their newborn child. Someone has taken the time to say, hey, it's okay. This is going to hurt, but it's wonderful. Stay settled. Here's what you need to know. Sometimes we don't understand what's happening in life. The crucifixion had rocked the world of the disciples, so much so that they believed that <clears throat> maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah. But Jesus pointed out that it didn't have to rock their world. That he had already taken the time. In the, in, in the scriptures that existed at this point, at that time, the Old Testament scriptures, he had already proven from Moses through the prophets and in the Psalms, everything that was going to happen and what they could be looking forward to. He told them what to expect. Believer, we've been given the whole counsel of God's word. Amen. He has told us what to expect. He has told us what he wants us to be about. He will walk alongside those who lean into him. Our faith is the strongest when we are focused on the full counsel of God's word. That's when your faith is the strongest. That's when you're the most settled and steady is when you've been in God's word because you're starting to fill up. There's a lot here. There's a lot of pages in this book. There's a lot of confusing things that are said in this book. But if we will commit ourselves to being in God's word, it will inform us of what's going on. Uh, the Bible talks about how if we will pray and give our anxieties over to God, that he gives us in return for that. When we go into him and say, I can't do this on my own, I need you, Lord, that he gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding that will what? Guard our heart and our mind. It will guard and make sure that we are thinking and feeling appropriately about what our circumstances are. We get discernment. We get understanding. We know what to expect. And then we can keep our eyes focused on him and get through it. The Bible reminds us of our place and our purpose within God's grand plan. It doesn't leave everything in an isolated, kind of set apart by itself hardship. No, it's all part of God's bigger plan. The volume of our feelings increases when the voice of God decreases in our life. I can't tell you how many people that, that will, will call or pull me aside and, and, and just need some encouragement, need some counsel, and, and how often the, the idea of feelings, how they're feeling or what's going on, the feelings and the emotions they're experiencing, how that's impacting. They need help because they feel this way. God made us emotional. Feelings are going to be something we're going to have to work through, but he never intended for you and I to let our feelings control us. Our feelings push us down. Our feelings deceive us, but they will. But instead, he says, Focus on my word. Let the volume of my word increase and then the 
the volume of your feelings will decrease. But if we get that in reverse, if you are not tied, tied into God's word, if you're like, well, I, I know a lot about the Bible and I've read it on Sunday. I, I guarantee you the volume of your feelings will continue to get louder and louder and you will be confused and discouraged and you'll be feeling like, what's going on here? Just like these two disciples. So we need to let the scriptures inform what's going on and then direct our steps. How should I move forward? God's word will tell us what we should do. Amen? Right. Here's the second thing we need to do. Don't equate trials and loss with defeat or weakness. The two disciples saw Christ's death as defeat. We thought he had all the, everything in order. We thought he was the guy. He died on the cross. Guess it was wrong. Here's a, one pastor says like this, when we face disappointments in life, it can be difficult to believe that God is working all things for your good. Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? I do. But what if resurrection power has been at work all along and you've just failed to recognize it? That is the reality, believer. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, it says, because his spirit resides in us, is at work in our lives. If the power of God can raise Jesus back to life, what in your life cannot be overcome by the power of God? What can you not endure? What hardship can you not face? Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That means until he returns, while you're in the in-between, you can trust this believer. He started something good at the moment of your salvation, and he is not going to stop working with you until he is with you again in person. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The Holman Bible Handbook says this, despair turns to joy upon understanding the nature of God's plan and Jesus' role in it. When we see that, things change. Our perspective changes. You know, these two disciples needed Jesus to open their eyes to the truth. He was, the word was right in front of them. But it wasn't until he opened their eyes that they could actually see him. Do you know we need the same? You and I, we need to ask God to give us spiritual understanding as well. God, help us understand the purpose of this trial, this hardship. Please understand why you're taking us this route when this route seems quicker or easier or it's going to get me to where I want to go. Why are you taking me over here, God? We ask him for that. But as the scriptures tell us, we need to ask that his will ultimately is done. God, if you're not going to answer that question, just give me then the faith to remain faithful to you and to trust you. And is he, is he worthy of our trust? Is Jesus worthy of your trust? Yes, he is. The resurrection proves that he is a man of his word and what he says is going to happen is going to happen. He's worthy of our trust. And so we need to let scripture inform our circumstances and direct our steps. We need to not equate trials and hardship with weakness or loss. When trials happen in our lives, it's not because God fell off his throne or he's not aware. It's all part of his plan. But here's the final point. We need to let all of our hope rest in Jesus. The word for hope in the Bible is, is equatable to trust. That we, need to have, we need to trust Jesus. <clears throat> the Baker Bible Dictionary defines hope as an expectation or belief in the fulfillment of something desired. So what's the test of this? I think this is a simple point that a lot of us as believers go, yeah, okay, Pete, all my hope is in Jesus. All right, let's, uh, let's break. But what's the test if this is truly the case in your life? 
I want to have a picture that I want to put up here that kind of just represents some different aspects of life. This is not all-inclusive, but different things. In the top left corner, we have a woman reading her Bible. So that, that indicates our life, that, that we're in a relationship with Jesus. And then next to that, we have the couple holding hands and, 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 and making relationships are an important thing in our life. And then maybe for some of us, it's a hobby or a sports team. Our bracket's really important to us. Those things matter. And then for some of us, it's our, our, our money, our future, our investments, our stocks. Here's the test for what we really hope in. If, uh, if, if my word, my relationship with Jesus is going well, and my marriage and my family relationship is going well, and uh, my money's doing well. It's all making massive gains. But my team isn't doing well. My child isn't playing enough. I'm not getting treated fairly. And that wrecks me. That indicates where my hope is. Or how about this? My team's doing great this year, which is never the case for me because I'm a Sacramento Kings fan, but there's hope. Uh, <laughs> My team's doing well. My money's doing well. Man, Jesus is more, I mean, he is, my heart is burning from the word and the time I'm in the word. But man, my, my marriage is, is not doing well. And because my marriage is off, man, my life is just chaotic. Then my hope is built on the status of my marriage. How about this? If, if everything's going well, but my money starts to tank and I'm just like, I can't sleep at night. I'm worried about it. Then my hope is in that. But here's the thing. If my hope is in Jesus, My hope is in Jesus. I could be having some relational issues, but I'm settled and steady because Jesus is going to get me through it. My finances could go down, downward. Uh, I could lose my job. I could be treated unfairly. But because Jesus is my hope, I believe that he is going to finish the good work that he started in me. If my hope is in Jesus, my team could could stink every year. My kid might not get to play, not be a starter on that team. But I believe that Jesus is going to lead us through that. He's going to teach us. He's going to actually make that good. See, what we hope in is going to get exposed through trial. But what he is calling us to, and what he's calling these believers to is this, the thing started to, to shake and, and, and Jesus died on the cross and everything changed in a moment. This is, this is the Messiah. He's gonna redeem any moment. We're ready to go with him. And then he hands himself over and then he dies on the cross. And now we're left, we're hiding in a room. What is going on? If we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we focus on his word, if we believe everything that God has said, we can be settled and steady. Believer, Where's your hope this morning? It's easy to say it's in Jesus. But as these other aspects of our life start to get poked, it's going to reveal what it is. I pray that our hope is in Jesus. And yes, those things are going to bother us if our, if our marriage is out of whack or if our, if our job is on the line or if our team is struggling but a believer is going to be settled and steady because they believe in a God who will never change. These two disciples 
follow Jesus. They believed things about Jesus, but their hope, we had hoped he was going to be the one that redeemed. They had a hope. They wanted to pick and choose what God would do. And when that didn't happen, their hope was dashed. Believer, we need to believe in the entire word of God and stay settled and steady until he returns. That's how you thrive in the in-between. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the reminder that Jesus truly did raise from the grave. I'm thankful, God, that we can have confidence this morning that our faith is not in vain and that because of it, because of our belief in the gospel, we will be with you forever. God, I do pray that we could also learn from these two disciples who took their eyes off the entire council of scripture and just focused on one part and when it didn't happen the way they wanted, they were discouraged. God, I pray that you would cause us to be in your word, to let it inform and guide our steps, that we would not view hardship as a setback, but as an opportunity to watch you work and that all of our hope would be in you. God, would you help us with that this week? We pray it in your son's beautiful name. Amen. finish with a real familiar chorus to St. Lahiders this morning. It says, all my hope is in Jesus.